Good evening. Welcome to the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. Enter freely and of your own will. In this episode, you may find many strange things, for the films to be discussed are old, and they have many memories. So, be there. Be there. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. I'm Jim Towns, your co-host, and with me is Livio Marino. Say hey, Livio. Hey, Livio. There you go. See? Uh, we have something really great coming up for you guys. Uh, we are going to dive deep into what one can argue, and maybe I'm starting this episode controversially, one could argue the most important monster film ever made. We are going to be talking about 1933's King Kong from RKO Studios. Um, Livio. Jim. Um, obviously, you know, we're, we're big Dracula, Frankenstein, Wolfman fans, but as far as the legacy of this film, as far as like the, what I always call the long shadow, I mean, I, I, I love those films as kind of horror movies. This, I have to specify, like, I, I just feel like without King Kong coming out in 1933, I think the landscape of our pop culture changes really dramatically. I think the things that don't happen if there's no such thing as King Kong change dramatically. You know, it doesn't inspire Godzilla. It doesn't inspire Frank Frazetta. And it doesn't inspire Ray Harry. Or, I mean, yeah, Ray Harryhausen. Ray Bradbury mm-hmm. was inspired by this film scene. I think he, he used to go see it all the time when it was playing in New York. He, he used to talk about. Um, Lucas. Spielberg, you know, everybody, uh, Peter Jackson, of course. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it's impact, not just on the culture, but, but it's impact on creatives themselves. Just, just it's the, the, the wellspring that comes from this movie is it, you cannot underestimate it. It's so critical. Um, it's just this incredible piece of huge imagination pulling off something with such limited resources at the times, you know, such limited technology, but pulling it off so incredibly well that it, you know, I, I was watching this film, getting ready to do the episode and just thinking like this film, it feels almost contemporary. Sometimes this film, it's so great. Yeah, it absolutely does. And it's, it's interesting. You start out like this because I was, as I was preparing for the episode, I kind of came to the conclusion. I actually wrote this in my notes. I would argue that I don't think from the, early 20th century, I don't think you can point to a more influential film, not just a horror film, but a more influential mm. film than King Kong. Right. Because, I mean, it, it just from everything, from the special effects to the stop motion to the story yeah. to the, the the use and the concepts of fantasy combined with horror, combined with adventure and action. Right to the music, to <laughs> the fact that the, the, the character yes. of, of a giant ape, they make emotionally appealing to the audience to where by the end mm-hmm. of the, the movie, despite the fact that, you know, he wrecks a New York train car and throws people, innocent people out of, you know, high-rise mm-hmm. buildings, <laughs> you, you're sad that, that, that he dies and you identify with them. And 
And yeah, to your point, you know, I love Frankenstein and the universe. I'll fly the universal monsters flag uh, until the day I die. But um, I don't as and as influential as those are without King Kong, you know, there is no Ray Harryhausen and those great, great movies from the 50s and 60s. Yes. They did. There is no King Kong remakes. There is no Godzilla. There is no Jurassic Park. There is no, I mean, it just, it, even, really? even yeah. today it goes on and on and on. Um, and it, it yeah, the it, movies today would not be what they are without King Kong. Absolutely. It's, it's a, it's a, that rare instance of something that's an, a technical triumph, a, an artistic triumph and a dramatic triumph it, it you know it's a whole package all at once. It's just it is it's a it's a watershed uh, film. I, I think there was film before 1933 in King Kong, and then there was film after 1933 in King Kong. Yes. So we're we're uh, we're gonna have a lot to say about this. So we're gonna try and get into it and get through it, man. Um, King Kong 1933 from RKO Studios uh, is about it's a film crew. Uh, well, a small film, more like a filmmaker and an actress who are on board a ship with a bunch of sailors who are his, basically his film crew that he's Shanghai. We'll get into that more later. Um, I don't want to, um, uh, who, uh, are off, uh, sailing to the South Pacific or the Southern oceans, um, to film, to make a, an adventure film. Uh, this is the kind of film this, this, this particular director is known for. They go, they find this Island that's uncharted and they stumble upon a gigantic gorilla who becomes enamored with their leading lady and, wackiness ensues so it's uh the film has two uh, directors marion c cooper and ernest b Shodstack. they were kind of partners cooper himself was kind of a short stockier guy who was kind of a real life adventurer in some ways like carl denham the one of the main characters of the yeah. film uh he volunteered with the the Polish Air Force in their war against the russians in the 20s was shot down and that's somehow Somewhere over there, he met Ernest B. Shodstack, who was a documentary filmmaker who was working in the Signal Corps. Um, and so he was sort of the technical filmmaker side. So what you get is kind of these two sort of bigger-than-life character, real-life characters combined kind of made a film about what if they had encountered a giant gorilla. They 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 really just took the next logical step. Um based on this kind of image Marion Cooper had had about a giant gorilla scaling the Empire State Building, which was very new at the time. Uh, it was mm -hmm. it was kind of like if, you know, if you picked something that was like just a novelty at the moment and then decided like, what if a giant gorilla climbed up on top of that? Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, and, and like you said, um, I think the character of Carl Denham is more or less based off of Merriam Cooper in real life because he, I mean, yeah. you, you, if you watch like any of the, if you have the Blu-ray of King Kong or watch any documentary on Merriam Cooper mm. and you see some stuff that he has shot, like where he's literally just climbs up a tree and films a tiger trying yes. to jump up after him and, and just the, the danger he puts himself in to just get a shot. I mean, he, he is, his sole focus is to, to film something spectacular, you know, just, just like, uh, Carl yes. Denham. With, with almost, almost fearless uh, yeah. for his own safety, um, the different the main difference being I think Marion C. Cooper was actually concerned for the safety of the people with him, and in the film Carl Denham 
is not so much that's not so much a priority for him as it possibly should be so that's that's i would stipulate that that possibly a big difference um uh the story is written uh, again uh, marion c cooper edgar wallace wrote kind of the idea of the thing they brought on a, a, a writer named james creelman who wrote some stuff and then a lady named ruth rose came on and ruth rose was she was either married to cooper or showstack i think it was Cooper. She was married to one of the directors. Sorry. Um, she came in and, and is kind of responsible for writing, rewriting a lot of the dialogue. And I think she's really responsible for why the characters are so punchy and, and in, interesting and likable and why the dialogue uh, kind of just burns along and is really fun and, and, and witty and clever and, but also really sincere. Uh, I think that we have Ruth Rose to, to thank for that. So that's really um and for writing such an interesting character in, in Andero too, I think that's that's yeah. a critical part too. Um, and in, so, in doing my uh, in doing my research, I will say that you know I'm not kind of like I said at the start of the show. You know, I, I am much more of a universal guy, I, and I was not as intimately familiar with the making of or the behind the scenes of of King Kong. I was really, I mean, I guess I knew, but I didn't, I guess, fully grasp that here in 1933 you, you have a a, a woman that's that's of extreme contribution to the characters in this film, and I think that's yes. something that's maybe not talked about as often as it should be when it relates to King Kong. I I, I think so too. And and, Ru- and Ruth had written quite a few other things. She was she was quite a success on her own, and and she was you know the the film was lucky that she came in and and lent her talents to the film. Um, I was lucky enough in two thousand and I think five. I got to see this film at the Aero Theater in Santa Monica and uh, Ray Bradbury, Forey Ackerman and Ray Harryhausen were all there in the audience and then spoke afterwards. And so that was kind of an, again, Forey Ackerman is another one I I should obviously drop as, as someone who's incredibly influenced by this film, who who adored the heck out of this film. So yeah, Um, that was neat. It's watching your heroes watch a movie made by their heroes, which is always, always great. Um, uh, the uh, the main characters we have uh, Faye Ray uh, playing Anne Darrow, um, Robert Armstrong playing Carl Denham. Uh, Faye Ray and Robert Armstrong had both uh, just recently been in the Most Dangerous Game, which is also produced by RKO, um, which uh, 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 Stack, I think had had or Shodstack and Cooper I think had both worked on that, um, yeah. or at least maybe one of them had. So this is kind of a based on the success of that, which has by the way a lot of jungle scenes people running through jungle scenes in it if you know the story of the most dangerous game um so so you can kind of see some of the matrix of of this film in that because obviously there's going to be a lot of people running away through things through the jungle in this film uh they'd really figured out how to how to do that uh bruce cabot plays jack driscoll who's the first mate on the ship uh on the venture and um and becomes the the love interest of Anne darrow uh other notable, a few, a few folks. Noble Johnson uh, plays the Nave Chief. We know we know Noble as the uh, the servant in the Mummy, um, mm-hmm. also in from so as a, as, a, as a filmmaker in his own right from the Silent Era and everything. Um, and Max Riker, Riker, I cannot pronounce his name. Which is it? Frank Riker. Aha, Frank. Yes, um, plays Captain Inglehorn. He was in Invisible Ray, Night Monster, Mummy's Ghost, and he was a director in his own. He directed like forty films. Uh, I think back in Germany, right? Yeah, and surprisingly, it, and I don't know why or or how this is possible. So this is in 1933, and and you know me, the the Universal guy, is used to seeing Frank Riker being strangled by the mummy ten years later. 
or strangled yes. by Boris Karloff in House of Frankenstein, somehow he looks older here as Captain Inglehorn than he did. Yes, <laughs> I don't. I I think that I I think they aged him up a bit here. I don't think. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, he's 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 uh, he's a critical character. Um, possibly the most. Uh, uh, there's an amazing score in the film by Max Steiner. Oh, yes. Um, that is that is. Um, there's another podcast. If you guys have never heard it, it's, it's, uh, Oh, I'm blanking on it. It's the, it's about music in the movies. Um, the soundtrack show. If you, if you guys go to the soundtrack show, uh, find the episode on Max Steiner and King Kong. It's incredible. And and it will go way more in depth and explain it in much more intelligently than I can, who am not a musician. Why, Again, uh, it'll, it's almost like what I just said. Why there, there was film scoring before King Kong, and then there was film scoring after King Kong. Max Steiner changed the game he did. when he did King Kong. It was it's absolutely critical. He did. This was the first, really, the first full feature length score specifically yes. for this. So the and I won't get too in the weeds, but RKO was out of money, um, and well, I won't say they're out of money. They were out. They were done spending money on King Kong, <laughs> um, because mm-hmm. obviously this production had had gone on for for quite a while, and um, yes. they did not want to invest any money in music. And they asked um, Steiner to just reuse existing music they already had. And and you know Steiner basically said, right. "There's nothing that would you know could match what this is." And uh, Marion Cooper just just said, "Hey, you know what." Go go do what you, what I know you can do, and we'll figure out the rest later. And and he com- exactly. he composed over seventy minutes of original music, and and there, there was obviously there was music in films before this. So like the Mummy in nineteen thirty two has probably twenty five ish minutes yes. of original music, and they've got some themes in there. But this is the first movie, not just horror movie, but first movie to use actual like. Uh, motives and, and themes specifically mm-hmm. for each character, and, and it's just so deliberate, and it's it's just it it's amazing. And not only that, but even the source music is you know what what you would call source music is all originally composed. So like the tribal yes. music when they arrive to the island, the uh, the kind right. of the swing like march music when. Carl Denham presents Kong in the theater. You know that's all stuff by Max Steiner written for this film. So it's it's uh, it is groundbreaking in terms of 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 a score and yeah, think yeah even even all that diegetic music yeah, yeah it, it's all him. It's great. It, it, it's 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 really modern scoring is is what he's he's doing. What we now associate with modern scoring with John Williams or Jerry Goldsmith or Randy Edelman would do now. That's this is this is what he kind of brought into the into play. It's it's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Um, the other name that that you cannot talk about this film without getting into real, uh, that's you know you can't undersell is Willis O'Brien. Willis O'Brien was the animator who brought King Kong to life. Now there's another guy named Marcel Delgado who built the creatures. So we got to specify that this wasn't a, entirely a one man operation. Um, there was an, a ton of craftsmen coming in and building the, the 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 creatures building the sets the miniature sets uh and and all that Willis O'Brien was mainly in charge of doing the animation and and helping figure out the compositing which we'll be getting into about how they put together some of these shots so uh Willis O'Brien does this he does um uh, Son of Kong and he mentors Ray Harryhausen Ray Harryhausen kind of trained up under Willis O'Brien he kind of you know uh admired him and 
went on and, and took it to the next step. But but again, it's one of those things like without Willis O'Brien, we don't have Ray Harrelson and we don't have Jason the Argonauts and Seventh Voyage of Sinbad and Clash of the Titans and everything else. So, yeah. Um, Willis O'Brien had done a previous a film previous to this, a silent film called The Lost World, yes. uh, where he, he had animated uh, dinosaurs. Uh, um, it's it's based on the Arthur Conan Doyle story. Uh, these these people find a, a mysterious plateau they get up on, and there's all these dinosaurs on on it. Um, and that sort of is. And then he was trying to do a film called Creation, uh, I think, yes. which also had to do with you know you know the ancient you know Pleistocene kind of era thing or whatever. Um, uh, and so that's probably why all the dinosaurs idea and stuff comes from the, the Kong fights in in this film. But thank goodness, because <laughs> it's fantastic. It, yeah, it, um, I think a lot of, or not a lot, but some of what he had worked on and envisioned for that that movie creation ended up more yeah. refined and, and probably better executed here in King Kong. It ends up in this and then ends up in Son of Kong, too. I think the yes. Triceratops from creation ends up in Son of Kong, uh, which we'll be, we'll be talking about Son of Kong sometime. Uh, I love Son of Kong. Um, this film, so produced in 1933, two years before Bride of Frankenstein had double Bride of Frankenstein's budget. This was a $670,000 budget, which... Huge for 1933. Based on inflation now would, would be $15 million, but there's no way you make this movie now for $15 million. This film would be... I mean, I think King, I think Peter Jackson's King Kong was like $150 million or something like that. So you don't... You don't get this for cheap. This no. this is this 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 is a lot of work. And we know we um, we've spent the majority of our of our episodes talking about movies that were made from start to finish, from you know pre production yes. to to post production in like thirty days. And this this yes. movie is way beyond that. I mean, you're talking seven eight months. I think I could be wrong mm-hmm. on that, but I mean, it, it there was a lot of effort and a lot of just concentration put into making of this. I think the, they said the, the, the T-Rex fight scene alone took seven weeks with just the way they did the the stop, stop motion. I mean, that, that is almost two months just for on film is is what two minutes long, if that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, right. Right. But, but, but then, you know, yeah, you step back and you realize that might might be two of the most important (laughs) movements in in genre filmmaking. So, yeah. Um, uh, so, all right, guys, we're going to get into the story here. We're going to th- rip through this baby. Um, King Kong. So uh, I, if you have the Blu-ray, you'll see that there's actually an overture that, that begins the thing, mm-hmm. uh, which is really cool. They they just have a card up, and then there's an entire, uh, uh, yeah, overture of, of Max Steiner's music, which is great. Um, and then we go to New York City. Um, the film takes place contemporarily, so um, the... New York of of the film is the New York of, of real time, which is very immediately post depression, yes. and that factors pretty heavily into the narrative of the film. Um, Carl Denham uh, is one of our leads. He's on a ship and he's getting his crew ready to go and and uh, do his next film. Carl Denham uh, has, is famous for doing these uh, adventure films, which were kind of a real thing at the time. Which you know people didn't have access to national geographic tv or you know whatever whatever what have you um it was it was it was always on pbs when i was young all the nature shows right um um so to be able to see a lion in the wild to be able to see hippopotamuses and 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 giraffes and and what have you um 
they would go see short subjects in the theater and you'd go to the theater. We've talked about this before on the show and, and anyone who knows about old film knows this, that you would go to the film, the, the theater and there'd be a newsreel and there might be a cartoon and then there might be some short subjects and there would be then, you know, the feature would, would play. It wasn't just like you go in see, see the trailers and see, you know, um, see the movie and then walk out. People would go in and spend some time there because again, well, there's no TV. So this is a way of delivering content to the, dare I say content to the, uh, to, to the, to the masses. Um, so Denim's known for doing this kind of thing, filming these like adventurous kind of exciting, uh, place, uh, films in far off places that are strange to most people. Um, however, he's running into this thing now where people keep sort of demanding that he, he, I, he says he talks about love interest. He complains that they want, they want a girl in his film. They want to have love interest. They want to have a pretty face to look at. But I think what he's really kind of upset is like, people want a story. I feel like Denim's just gone and filmed like a lot of wild footage and, and is, is sort of piecing it together <laughs> hasn't really like like composed it together into like yeah. what we would call like a narrative as much i think he just likes going and doing the thing right yes um yes uh uh which is you know um uh so so he, what he's doing is trying to he's sitting on the boat waiting to leave and there's this great uh kind of ticking clock here because they have they have these gas bombs on board they have all this like ammunition and armaments that the heart, the the marshals, you know, the the local authorities are if they're good, if they come on the boat, they're going to impound the boat because they're not really supposed to have these. He's kind of breaking the law, so they're like, we got to get out of the harbor really soon before they come tomorrow. But they're held up by because they don't have a, a, a female lead yet because this theatrical agent who who is coming on board and talking to Denim refuses to to let any woman get on this boat for months or weeks or whatever with this really tough looking, like the only woman on a boat with a bunch of tough sailors going, going someplace that they won't tell them where and having no idea when they're going to come back. I mean, it's, would, and you, you, you get it. Like it would be irresponsible of him to do that to anybody. Yeah. And it, it you can, I mean, in some ways it, it could kind of come off as, you know, oh, you did like it against women and all that. But like you said, it's actually fairly responsible to say, oh no, this is not a good idea to have a, a beautiful I, woman on board this. And, this and, yeah. And, and you, you, you do see the effects when it does, which when, and Daryl does get on the boat is, I mean, no one, there's no, she's not under any danger or anything like that because it turns out everyone on the boat's, you know, pretty upstanding guys, but uh, she does draw an inordinate amount of attention oh, yeah. <laughs> away from. There's probably sailors who should be doing something else who instead are watching, <laughs> or, you know, what, what Andero's doing in front of the camera. So, yeah, um, we do see that. Uh, um, again, nobody but uh, Denim knows where they're going. The skipper uh, uh, and, and uh, Jack Driscoll, who's the first mate, um, they've been on some of these trips with him before, so they kind of trust him, but they're very uneasy about. Uh, Denim's reluctance to share the coordinates of their destination. And Denim's playing it very carefully because I think he's worried someone else is going to find out this kind of secret that he's found. But I also feel like if, if I think he's worried that if he tells them the whole thing, they're just going to say no, and we're not, we're not doing this. So he's, yeah, he's he's not, he's not totally forthright. Denim's a complicated character. He really is. Um, And and he's, he's definitely, keeping this cards close to his vest, so to speak. And, and he, mm-hmm. um, I, I think the story does, I mean, as we'll see once we meet Anne here in a little bit, but they do a very good job at immediately taking away any, any notion that he has an interest in 
romantic or physical relationships or, or like that. He, his, yes. he is laser focused on, on this movie, this vision that he has of, right. uh, and you know what, what this story that he's heard that he's not wanting to, to tell yes. everyone about. Yeah. He has, he, he's got priorities and one of them is, is, is not love. He, he'll leave <laughs> yeah. that to, to others. Um, which is, which is, and, and, and he honestly thinks, I think he thinks romance kind of complicates the business of what he's trying to do because when, and inevitably starts falling for Jack and likewise, he tries to calm it down. Um, cause he knows that that just leads to, to complications. He's got an objective. Um, uh, so, so he decides in, 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 with his kind of back against the wall, he can't, no one, no one's going to give him an actress to, to take. He's going to go find one. And there's a joke about like, there's plenty of girls in this town in more danger tonight than I'm going to put them in, which, you know, is an illusion to, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> um, uh, it is New York city. Uh, but, but that's what he's going to do. So he, he leaves and he has this great quote as he, as he, uh, Denham has a lot of great quotes. I'm going to keep kind of, popping them in as we go. I wrote them all down because I really, I just do think the, the writing on, in this, in this movie just crackles. He walks out and he yells back, they're going to have to think up a lot of new adjectives when I get back. <laughs> Cause he's going to come back with like, the most amazing film they've ever seen. It's really funny. Um, and, uh, I just again, it, yeah, it's filmmakers making a filmmaker, their main, one of their main characters and there's, and making him like, in a way, the the best of the, them, but also the worst. It's it's a it's a wild. Like again, I say he's a complicated character, and not to get too far ahead, I think you could argue that he's actually the villain of the film. Yes, I don't think that was the intention at the time, but but as we get in, I'm going to keep kind of coming back to that. Um, again, it's the height of the depression. Uh, he's looking for actresses in in missions like homeless shelters. Uh, women are lined up. Um, I love that the, the line like. You know, what do we get? Like, we get, like, soup tonight and coffee and sinkers in the morning or something. Um, there's a, And it's winter. All these women are all bundled up. They're, you know, they're trying to, to get in. And, and so people were very, very poor and very, very desperate at this point. So desperate that uh, he ends up meeting Anne by, he's standing next to, like, an apple cart that's selling produce. And this wafy, young, blonde woman walks up and tries to steal an apple because she's so poor, she doesn't have a, a dime for an apple or anything like that. And the guy's going to call the cops and put her, you know, she's going to get her arrested for trying to steal from him and everything. And Denim just shoves him off. And he's like, here's a buck, just, you know, yeah, back off, which, which is, you know, um, and nearly passes out because she's so hungry. Uh, <laughs> she actually kind of faints and Denim, Denim grabs her and keeps her from falling and then gets a real look at, and we we get a kind of our first look at at Fay Ray, and he's he says, "Hang on, I mean, he's found his his leading woman now. That's for sure, because he's like, wow, okay, yes. um, she's a knockout. She is, and you know, and of course, I'm speaking from a strictly uh, male point of view here, so take that for what it's worth. But um, there's oftentimes when you, when you when you're in you know 2022. And you go back and you you look at movies that are eighty ninety years old. It's I won't say it's hard, but it the the fashion and the makeup and everything are are so vastly different at times mm-hmm. that it's hard to imagine some as you would say a bombshell or you know or, or something like that from from either from a male or a female. But uh, Fay Ray is is one who's 
beauty, I think, really transcends any any time. She is just mm-hmm. gorgeous. I mean, just in not only in this movie, but in any movie that she was in. I think she was in something like eleven movies in this year. She was a very very busy person, but uh, yeah. in this movie, she's she's actually not she's not blonde by you know by birth. She's wearing a blonde right. wig in this one, um, just to kind of counteract the darkness of of Kong. But uh, she's just. She is a knockout throughout this entire movie. <laughs> I agreed. In all in all her iterations, when she goes from this, when she goes to being all messed up in the jungle, mm-hmm. and when she goes to being all quaffed in the in New York at the end. Yeah, I, absolutely. And I agree. Like her beauty's just timeless. It doesn't she doesn't look like a woman of the thirties. She just looks like a beautiful woman. Yes, exactly. Um she she would fit you you could drop her into a nineteen sixty four picture, you could drop her yes. into something that happened last night and she would fit right in and be just yeah. as beautiful yeah. regardless of the time or setting. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um uh Driscoll um Driscoll, uh Denim offers her uh, uh, the, the role uh, kind of on the spot. He's like, and, and he gets ahead of himself and he's like, okay, you're getting on my ship. We're going away. We're going to have an adventure, whatever like that. And she's excited, but she's like, hang on, what's the deal? And this is the point where, uh, Denim specifies like, no, I'm not, no, there's no funny business yeah, here. Like that. It's not yeah. what I'm, I'm, I'm here after. And you know, she's, she's naturally reticent, but she is desperate. And she's also up for an adventure. When she gets on the boat, she's like, I've never been on a boat before. She's she she had the feeling she she's grown up not very privileged so this is all new to her and she's very excited to like take this next adventure in her life. Um, Yes, and you really and Fay Ray does a great job, especially in this first quarter, of really portraying or displaying that this is all happening so suddenly and so fast for her, and she is she is just like wide eyed and just doesn't really know what to think. I mean, she's let alone going to an island with with you know these 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 <laughs> tribal uh, people and and giant yes. monsters she's not even been on a boat before i mean so this is all like so new and so <laughs> there's, a, there's a steep there's a steep curve yeah, ahead for her there is <laughs> for sure um she inst- what i like about her on the boat she instantly makes friends i mean she instantly makes friends with uh, charlie the cook who's played by victor wong um the senior victor wong not victor wong from Big Trouble in Little China, I should specify. Uh, uh, this is uh, the original Victor Wong, and he, he's in Son of Frankenstein, or Son of Kong as well. He's in quite a bit of stuff. Um, she makes fun, fun friends with with Charlie the Cook's monkey. She, yes. you know, the, she seems to be quite quite a hit, and, and not just because she's beautiful, but she's very kind, and she doesn't, d- you know, uh, discriminate in between, you know what someone looks like or what their job is. Charlie's just the cook, but she doesn't care. She's, she's happy to have a conversation with Charlie. Yeah. Um, the one guy she doesn't seem to be a hit with is, is, uh, is Jack Driscoll, uh, who's again, the first mate, who's a, you know, very tough, very worldly guy, uh, square jawed, what have you. Um, he's been around. She, she hasn't, he has. And he thinks that women on ship are, are, I don't. I don't think he's superstitious like the old, you know, thing where like it's bad luck. But I think he he does think they're a distraction. He thinks uh, it's it's better if if the men are just left to their own and whatever. Um, yes. Which I mean, but it, the more he complains about her, the more we realize he like, that yeah. he's <laughs> trying to just fight his own. Yeah. You know, he himself is completely enamored with this girl, uh, and you know, he's trying to stand up and 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 he's trying to deflect, but. He's losing the battle. 
very much so. And and she's she's uh, charming. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you know the the movie does a great job of she is just like the the quintessential um, girl next door. You know, she's very pure. She's very right. kind. She's she's you know just excited about the wonders of the world. She's she doesn't like you said. She doesn't have a mean bone in her body. You know, whether it's a no. a, a yeah. cook or an animal, she's very happy to be there. Very happy to talk to whoever. So right. it really does good at yeah. establishing. Or making the audience see in her what Kong eventually will see, which is something yeah, you know yeah. it, a bit irresistible. And, and and in innocence too, she doesn't. She's not someone who plays on her looks, and she's not someone who seems like honestly really like driven physically uh, for the most part. She's kind of a little sister type. She's she's honestly quite innocent. No, she is. Um, and and I, I feel like romantically as well. She's she's you know. Um, so in a way, they're they're. I always think her and Driscoll are really suited for each other because they're they are both romantically innocent. Let's say like it's not like Driscoll hasn't been around, but you get the feeling he's probably never had like a a real crush. You know, <laughs> maybe since since childhood or something, or that's been hardened out of him, and now he's like trying to figure out how to go about this again. <laughs> Later on, he's like, you know, I I actually think I love you. <laughs> like, yeah. he's kind of like, <laughs> He can't believe there's, he can't believe it's happening. Something, something um, about early thirties dating. I mean, they just direct and right to the point. You know, you know, it's like a couple weeks together. You know what? I love you. Let's get married. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and usually they just end up stuck next to each other for some reason yeah. on a boat or somewhere, and then that it just happens, right? Um, uh, it would happen for Zeppo Marks all the time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, but 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 what this what happens? What's what I think is neat is that. The way Anne charms Driscoll and softens his hard exterior is really the same thing she does to Kong. There's yes. the movie really is a, a there's a there's a romantic triangle going on here, and I I don't want to get too into I don't I how do I say this I I think that Dino De Laurentiis seventies era or you know Kong iteration I don't want to say poison the well but I think it that kind of, for lack of a better phrase, like horny gorilla yeah. bit with, with that, that gorilla and just Jessica Lang. I think that kind of infected backwards to this film. And I think a lot of people recently in the past few decades have, have looked at this film through that lens and really seen like a, a, a Randy ape. And I don't, I, I think, I mean, I guess you're free to interpret that in this film, but I, and we'll get into this more. I I really feel like Kong's affection towards Anne is more fascination and yes. and and uh, obsession, but not on a carnal level. And, and I I just I just feel like while I'm a big fan of the '70s De, De Laurentiis film, I feel like it kind of skewed off the 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 more interesting story that yeah, way. Yeah, and, so. and it's you know I 100% agree, and we'll talk about it more when we get you know, into a lot of the yeah. jungle scenes. But yeah, yeah I, I think Kong is more more curiosity and just more protectiveness. Because um, yes. obviously he's not seen anything like her before. And he's he is right. enamored with her, but not necessarily in a I want to marry you type. <laughs> you know, he, I don't, I'm not yeah. sure if Kong yeah. has, it, has that concept. He kind of just wants her, he wants to be nice to her and wants to protect her and, 
you know, he wants her to be his yes. kind of, yeah, he covets. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in that way, like, again, like I say, like we do have this kind of like three way kind of romance thing happening. Um, not so much between Jack and Kong as that's, that, that's, there's nothing <laughs> romantic there, uh, as we will soon see. But anyway, th- this idea of, of her ability to like whatever, which is funny because it's, it, it's the story that, uh, a denim is trying to make. He wants to make this thing. He's, he's heard these legends about, uh, a great beast on this island from uh, from there's there's a big long story where these these other sailors were on a, a Norwegian bark or something like that and they found like these natives that had been lost and they took them back to the island and then they they made a map of the island and they they saw the wall and they see you know hear the legend of Kong uh they sell the map to Denim and Denim. This is the thing Denim has that he's following to, to this island. This is his goal. And he knows, he doesn't know what's on the island, but he knows there's something terrifying and gigantic uh, based on, on the translations and what they've said. So his, he's created this idea of a story of like Beauty and the Beast. He wants to do a modern Beauty and the Beast with this beautiful yes. young woman who will be played by Ann Darrow and whatever the beast is that shows up. I don't think he's expecting... <laughs> a 25 foot tall incredibly powerful pissed off gorilla but that's what he yeah he gets so and that's what you get for not planning your films very well i guess and i will say that the uh i love how this movie right from the start inputs the whole idea of beauty and the beast because like carl denham yeah. mentions it at least three times here you know right when they get back to the mainland and obviously at the at the very end um, mm-hmm. and there's also, I wanted to point out to a, a line that of Carl Denham's that I really liked that, uh, Claude Rains almost says verbatim in the Wolfman, which is, he says, um, oh, come on, all legends have some basis and, you know, based on something in reality, you right. know, when, uh, when right. Sir John Talbot is explaining to his son, Larry about the, the whole werewolf idea, he says, well, all legends have some basis in fact, you know, so that's a, I just thought that was a pretty good, uh. Pretty good I think so. Yeah, line absolutely. To, to throw out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so he is. He's betting on. He's betting a lot on. He's betting his reputation. He's betting. However, uh, like I'm not sure who's financing this expedition. I don't know if Denim is. I feel you get feeling Denim's pretty wealthy, so he might be self financing. Um, so if so, he's got a lot. You know, obviously, literally invested in the success of this enterprise. He. As a filmmaker, what I find one of the things I find fascinating is that he and he has a he has a line in a little bit where he says like he doesn't trust cameramen anymore because he was trying to film a charging lion or something or rhino or something and the cameraman balked <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and stopped recording and because he didn't trust Denim to kill the the animal before he got to him and since then he's always shot his own thing so so Dan, Denim is basically a one man crew he's it's him and the camera filming and then he's got his actress. The entire rest of the crew, air quotes, crew of his film crew are basically these guys he's hired to be the sailors on the boat. He's using the sailors on the, he's overstaffed the boat with, with too much crew. They've, they've overhired so that there are extra guys to help carry all his gear, all the, the props, costumes, and also bombs, guns, (laughs) ammunition, and, 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 and camera film and film canisters and everything, which I don't know how to say it in a nice way. I'm not sure. If, I'm not sure. A, a, you know, a film crew, they have that job because they, they, everyone has very specific jobs and they know how to do them really well. Like your gaffer, your grip, your, your sound guy, 
your, your PA, everyone's got a specific, very clearly defined job and that's what they do. Hiring a whole bunch of sailors to just randomly do this thing, I'm not <laughs> sure is the most efficient way to make a movie. I feel like I feel like it's a really good way to probably get all your equipment broken, yeah. but what have you. It's it's this is his plan. Um and uh in expectation of getting to the island while they're while they're still sailing, he has Anne put on one of the one of the dresses and uh and takes her out on deck to do some camera tests. So she's, he's going to try and see like how the light works on her and, you know, you know, how to, how best, what angles are the best way to film her, which it's Faye Ray. So pretty much every angle is a good way to film her, (laughs) but Hey, you know, um, uh, and he, he directs her a little bit. He's trying to see how she takes direction. Cause again, she's not, she, she says she's done some extra work, right? Yes. On Long Island, yeah. it's some studio. I don't know which, if she's referencing a real studio or not. That's interesting. Uh, but they've closed down, I guess, due to the depression. depression. Yeah. Um, uh, so he has, you know, he gives her some directions, looking up, looking down, being, you know, being worried, looking up. And then he's basically directing her in, in expectation of, of, of her seeing something very large and very scary, which I think he thinks is a likely thing that's going to happen. And he's trying to see how she's, you know, and she walks, she looks up, she looks up and he tells her to scream. He tells her to scream for her life. And we hear, uh, Fay Ray, scream for the first time in the film this very iconic scream that she was that, that she's so well known for and she does it a few more times in the film but it's it's a big moment where she she does this and driscoll grabs the captain and he's like what is he what does he think she's really gonna see which is a great foreboding <laughs> you know oh it man. is um so far in the movie we haven't had a whole lot of special effects involved we've had just like a lot of a lot of sets and a lot of you know just just coverage of, of scenes of people talking it's not like dynamic stuff that's going to change because they get to skull island i don't do they call it skull island in this film or does that is that a name that it comes so. out po- no, i think they do refer to a skull yeah they they, they they say there's a skull shaped mountain but i just don't know if they ever call it skull island i, I was pretty sure they did call it skull island at least once or twice which i mean again that that's Fair. something else that you know skull island is such a contemporary term just because the you mean the, the recent movies and, and right. it's obviously been uh made and been a uh several times throughout the decades but it's yeah yes. it's almost like you you hear it in this movie you're like oh they, they mentioned skull island you know without realizing this is where it came from <laughs> it's it's one of those things where there have been so many uh later versions of this film uh, the again the De Laurentiis one in in the seventies, the Peter Jackson one, and then on into Skull Kong Skull Island. Uh, even the past few years, that and and the thing I find fascinating is they're all really good. Yes, I mean, each in their own way, and each has their each has you know maybe some things that work better than others. Possibly <clears throat> Jack Black. Um, <laughs> <laughs> who said that? Um, uh, who I love Jack Black. I think he's great. I think possibly he was not cast the best in that film and that's that's maybe my only criticism that entire film uh i'm just saying that other films have have, and and they have similarities to this movie and they have differences and they're all so good and i've enjoyed them so much that sometimes i i i tend to forget wait does it does ann do this in this film or is that yeah (laughs) the ann character in the jackson film does this there's just moments where i'm kind of like wait hang on what's which version is that thing i'm talking about from just a bit um uh, they do, they, they hit a fog bank and they're taking depth and stuff and it's shallowing up and they realize they're close to the island. And then, the, then, uh, the, the fog park parts and we see Skull Island, um, this great shot looking from the boat and the captain standing there and there's, 
there's this great matte painting of the the island, the, the mountain with the wall and the beaches, and there's animated birds. There's a lot of shots of animated birds in this film where they they literally hand animated, or they might have rotoscoped. I think they hand animated birds, and they're flying in behind the main characters in the background. So you just get this idea of this, you know, very like uh, bio biosphere you know life in the in the the south seas kind of thing um um the island in the way they reference it in the in the in the cabin when he's talking to to the captain uh he says it's southwest of sumatra so and i guess i never really paid that much attention to that and then i looked it up while we were doing the i was doing the prep for this livio and so sumatra is like right next to singapore so it's kind of just a north and a little bit to the west of Australia. So I'd always imagined this island to be somewhere in the South Pacific, but what it it's really in like the South Indian Ocean. Yeah. And it's it's if we if we were to, to believe, you know, the, the map. Right. And it's it's interesting because when when they land and they see the huge gate and all that, the uh Captain Inglehorn he goes, It looks Egyptian. <laughs> and it, that, I, that, yeah. I was like, I don't think they're in Egypt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right, yeah, yeah, and and obviously, and we'll get it in a minute. The the natives uh, uh, are depicted as being more or less African, yeah. Um, and the natives of this island would have been more uh, Southeast Asian. They would have been more. I mean, if it is where we're supposed to, and if those natives are actually native to the island, uh, I think you know that. I think what they're trying to, I think what the filmmakers are trying to sort of hint at is that. There's, the wall was built by an ancient civilization that that the current residents of the island don't have nothing to do with. They they came to the island and found the wall as it was that, that was built to guard in these 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 gigantic creatures, and they kind of keep it up. But the the people they encounter on the island are actually slightly more recent emigres uh, 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 into the uh, immigrants to the island. Um, the Wall itself was was built for King of Kings, the Cecil B. DeMille uh, silent film, um, and a lot of the the native village had already been built for a film called Bird of Paradise by King Vidor. So, like you know, the the film was taking advantage of some extant yes. sets and to to save some money on 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 building everything else. And the wall is really big. It's a big set. It's like there's nothing. There's not like a lot of trickery about it. It's just. It, it does sort of taper naturally to the top, so it kind of makes it, it tricks your eye into thinking it looks a little taller than it really is. But it is really, it's probably four stories tall. It's gigantic. It is. And it is, uh, anytime you, you watch Jurassic Park and you see those, you know, the those big gates, that's, ex- that's yeah. exactly where, where that came from. And it, it's, it's just, yeah, it's, yeah. it's amazing how, how huge and how just impressive yeah. it is. Just, yeah, just a, just a wild thing. Um, do you, uh, Olivia? Do you know what happened to that wall? Like, like how it how it finally met its end? I do not. They set it on fire and drove a carriage in front of it for the burning of Atlanta in Gone with the Wind. Oh wow! Only only yeah. six years they, later. They, they, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. On the in the back of Culver Studios. I've worked on Culver Studios, and like Culver Studios is like almost only like a fraction as big as it used to be because now. Most of that was sold off, and it's actually Culver City now. And there's like Starbucks and you know creameries and that stuff there. But yeah, um, uh, my favorite thing is when they first get to the 
beach on the boats. You have this kind of great long shot of like these guys in these rowboats getting, you know, coming up on the beach. And then above that is kind of a matte painting of the, the wall and the thing. That beach itself is Cabrillo Beach, which is like... Uh, like three quarters of a mile away from where I'm sitting right now. It's right here in San Pedro. They filmed that oh, wow. scene. So, and and this is yep, yep. San, this San Pedro for Skull Island. There you go. And this is uh this is really where you start to, I guess, understand the impact because uh, we talked about this in our our episode on the Brute Man. Uh, um, talked about how you know the the magic ingredient for. The Universal films was that they injected humanity in, and, and it's what makes it yes. successful throughout the years. And well, here it, it's 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 a special ingredient, and it, it's it's something different. But you, you take these characters that you've been introduced to; they don't necessarily have full backstories, but they have enough depth to them that you can either like them or dislike them, but you can relate to them. So you have the captain, the first mm. officer, the filmmaker, the the girl, the cook. The monkey, yeah. and now you put right, put, right. <laughs> you put them in in this situation on this this exotic island, where they're now going to, in, as a group, encounter all of these wild things. And I mean, you, you talk about a plot device that has been continually used and reused and reused up to today, and it never right. gets old. <laughs> I mean, you know, there, there's no, a reason no. there's five Jurassic Park movies and there's been so many remakes of this one of King Kong, you know, it, it's, it's such a great, it, I mean, you cannot understate how innovative this was for, for the, just from a plot device and a, and a storytelling standpoint to, to have that happen for the first time here. Right. Right. Well, you, the thing I think about is, it's even beyond the fact that it's a giant ape. What what somehow this this kind of weird code, Cooper and Shotzak and 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 everybody were, were able to crack is is the is the the issue of scale. Yes. It's the idea of a of of filming a character that is dozens of times larger than a normal person. Which I don't know. I mean, yeah, yeah. They again, Wilson O'Brien had done Lost World, and that was a Conan O'Brien or a Conan O'Brien, <laughs> a Conan close. Doyle, yeah, very uh, close story. <laughs> yeah, same thing, yeah. right? Um, and and and, but even then, like dinosaurs were only discovered in the 1800s. So the idea that there were creatures, not just like an elephant, which is like a very very large creature, obviously, or you know, a whale, obviously. Um, the idea that that th- this this basic myth that we have of like a Leviathan or, or giants or whatever that, that almost every culture kind of has the idea that it has some basis in somehow these animals that lived before our time that dwarfed us and then, and then disappeared. Um, the way the, the film, f- the ingenuity of this film that, that says, but, but what if, you know, mm-hmm. that man and, and this, this type of creature ran into each other and, and had to, you know, we had a contest of like, of basically size and brute force and and age versus smallness but intelligence, right? Yeah. Um, it's just that basic thing, and you see that now in everything. Like, like it's just this idea of like things that had never really been fully developed before, and then here's the first try, and for a first try to just knock it out of the park the way this film oh, does. I yeah. guess. Just to wrap up my long-winded <laughs> well i mean it's 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 good because i mean the like you said dinosaurs had not really been known 
for a while. And even, mm. and even so it was, you know, we have the benefit today of, of endless amounts of knowledge compared to the people of, in 1933. I mean, I mean, there's, there's a reason, you yes. know, when war of the world's broadcast on radio that most people thought it was real, you know, and there's, right. it's, it's not because people were, you know, I, I guess for lack of a better term, dumb, it was just that just, no, the knowledge was not there. The knowledge that we have today was not there back then. Same thing with yes. you know with these dinosaurs, and and you know when you think about how they did and handled like the movements of the dinosaurs and the sounds of the dinosaurs, nobody knew you know what in the world a dinosaur right. sounded like in 1933. You know they they had to come up with this all on their own. And right, they, like you said, they just knocked yeah. it out of the park on all levels. It, it, it wasn't until I think pretty recently they've been able to actually mold and like 3D model the nasal passages of, of from inside the skulls of these these extinct dinosaurs and like blow air through them and be like, oh, that's what, yeah, that's the kind of noise that Diplodocus yeah. would make. That's interesting. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, you know, and, and for all the stuff they get, and we'll get to this in just a bit, but for all the stuff they get wrong about the dinosaurs, and obviously the Stegosaurus is like, probably three times larger than, than a stegosaurus really was. And a lot of the, the, the herbivores, herbivorous dinosaurs t- seem kind of carnivorous in the film, you know, um, for all the stuff they get, got wrong. They got a lot, right? Yes, they did. Like an incredible amount. Right. Um, it's, it's wild how, how, how accurate, uh, to some degree, um, uh, they managed to get. So anyway, um, everyone gets to the, to the shore, uh, Denim has made sure they bring his camera and they make sure they bring Anne and they bring costumes because he's like, you know what? If we see something insane, I, I want to film it and maybe just get out of town then. You know, I, I don't want to miss that opportunity. We may only get it once. So he's he wants to be prepared. Um, and he's got all the sailors there have brought their their guns and some bombs and things like that. They um, they they're tr- they're. They think they're ready for anything, I guess, is, is the idea. But what they do find is they find a, a, a ceremony already happening. And one of the Islander, young, a young Islander girl, is um, supposed to be the Bride of Kong. They've got her on a little platform. And there's, there's uh, some of the men of the tribe are dancing in front of her, um, wearing kind of mocked up versions, very cool looking versions of... of they're made to look kind of like apes themselves, um, uh, like like dark yes. fur and everything. I don't know what they were supposedly made out of, but it's you know, um, uh, which is you know. So you get the idea. So so what I think the idea is that the the tribe every once in a while at some prescribed thing uh, sacrifices a young girl from from their their midst to Kong uh, as a way to appease Kong and and I, hopefully I guess make it so that he doesn't destroy everybody in the village. Um, what Kong does with these young women they sacrifice to him, I, I'm not sure. Uh, we never see... We, it's not like we see little skeletons when he goes back to his cave with Anne or anything like that. So, um, yeah, you know, right. I, I I think people at the time wondered if maybe he ate them finally. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, who knows? Uh, or, I, I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of people that watch this have watched this movie that are convinced that Kong eats people in this movie, and he never he never does. He, I'll just jump ahead. He never eats anybody. He he does put people in his mouth and and crushes them with his teeth, but then there the film is very conspicuous about showing that he then takes them out and throws them on the ground. Yes. He doesn't consume them. It's not um, which is in keeping with by the way giant 
giant mountain gorillas are uh, vegetarians. They do not consume meat. When they're younger, I think they do sometimes, but as they get older, they they just stop, they stop to but anything beyond bugs or anything like that. They don't actually. Uh, they don't need meat. So, yeah. so that's true to form. Yeah. For, for and Colin. I get the impression, and I, I got this when I was kind of watching this and paying more attention to it, you know, to prep for this episode, that the way how um, curious Kong is with Anne, you get the impression mm-hmm. that he is probably bored and just not as interested <laughs> or enamored with the native women there on the island. So I would imagine that they are probably more or less left to their own devices and they're probably killed by the dinosaurs and the, you know, the lizards or, or sp- spiders, you know, whatever else that. So, that is so your, your, your theory is he finally gets bored with them and kind of like just abandons them. And then as soon as he abandons them, some, something else comes and picks them up. That's, that's, I believe I could buy into that. That makes sense because it does seem like everything in this jungle is after Anne once he, once he takes her in there and, yes. and Kong constantly has to fight them off. But every single dinosaur is interested in, 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 in making a snack out of Anne. So yeah, I don't know. Um, but I, I you know, it makes sense. It, Kong might be just bored of this whole process at this point. And then Anne comes along and it's some, it's something that he hasn't experienced before. And he's, he is interested now. It's like, she, I'm sure she smells different. I'm sure, yeah. you know, cause she probably wears perfume and she, you know, uses, you know, western style soap and and what have you you know um yeah yeah um again we have noble johnson as the chief of of the tribe and then we have a guy named steve clemente um who plays the witch doctor uh steve is in uh, uh mr clemente was in um most dangerous game as well so he's another kind of carryover from that last film uh he's he's great and uh, I can't wait to do Most Dangerous Game. I know it's sort of only a horror movie, but it is kind of a horror movie. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, that would be a good one. You know, it's not a monster movie. Let's let's say, but yeah, you know, we're going to get to that. It'll be great. Um, naturally, the tribe instantly, and and there's a ton of uh, culture mashup going on here yeah, with yeah. The, the costumes and behaviors of the tribe, and probably the languages and and what have you that that. We don't need to get into just it's it was 1933 and a certain amount of ignorance just prevails in when dealing with this type of subject matter in, in most of these films. It's it's rare when that doesn't happen. So, again, yes, yes, they're African uh, uh, by and large. Perhaps, you know, maybe they just sailed eastward over from Africa and landed here. Who knows? Like maybe they were lost at sea. I'd, they used to be, you know, mariners of some kind. I don't know. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, like kind of like what, it's we, what you is. know, we were just talking about with the, the just the knowledge wasn't there. I mean, that the, I think the general yeah. knowledge wasn't there about what a native tribe in, in, you know, was it Southeast Asia or wherever yes. would look like. And yes. I don't think they necessarily cared that much. Not, not out of maliciousness, yes. but it just wasn't forefront like it is today. Well, also, also there there was a very large population of African American actors and extras in Hollywood at this time, so you know, yes. uh, um, working that 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 the filmmakers could have access to. The amount of Asian American uh, actors and extras working at the time, I feel like, was probably far lower, and it would have been much more difficult, especially casting. Uh, Young young women, young girls, children, who knows? Um, uh, there was also, I mean, there also was a, still a bit of a stigma about Asian Americans at this time, yes. you know, going on in in America in general. So, you know, uh, 
who knows? Um, and you know, it is what it is. Noble Johnson, um, you know, he had his own production company that was right. just for uh, African Americans. And I, I kind of wondered yes. watching this if a lot of these extras, especially the women and children, weren't either a part of his group or related to people that were a part of his, you know, his his company that he had. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I I think his was it was in the silent era that he had his. Yeah thing in the probably the twenties and stuff, but you know, some of the some of the men definitely could have been and some of them could have been children of people he'd worked with and stuff. Um Noble Johnson cuts a really great figure though. God, that guy's he's a he's a he's a he's a real like he looks like an action figure man. He's, he does. <laughs> he's 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 great as a chief and he's a guy like you do not want to mess with this guy, man. He's really um he's not afraid of these what you know white people. He he's he's afraid of Kong though. Um so their main thing is they he wants Anne. And the witch doctor kind of whispers in his ear, like, like they want to trade Anne for some of their women. <laughs> They're going to give him like a three for one deal, I yeah, guess. You know? Like six um, for one, yeah. Uh, be, because he he has this idea that Anne, that Kong will like Anne. Um, uh, and of course, you know, the, everyone from the ship is like, yeah, no, we're not, we're not doing that. Um, so, so um, they, they take Anne back to the ship. Um, the, the, the skipper uh, is is somewhat conversive in the language the native people speak, so he's sort of interpreting between them in this kind of broken way, which is it's a, it's a great scene. It's a very tense scene. It's like, oh, okay, you know, this is dangerous. This has the capability of like really erupting, and we do see here we we see uh, Denim does not panic in situations like this. There's a reason he does, he can do what he does, you know, to make the types of films he does. Um, he's very calm and in charge and he's the one telling everyone else, like everyone stay calm. Don't lift your rifles. Don't run. Don't, yes. you know, don't make the situation worse and stuff. He, he definitely is. Um, and I think it is maybe latter iterations of the film. We, we kind of, there's this idea of, of Carl Denham as kind of a goofy character or kind of like a coward or inept or whatever. Um, and this uh that might be the Jack Black, you know, yeah. you know, iteration more. Um, cause cause um you know, this this uh this iteration, uh played by Robert Armstrong, is is a very in charge guy. And very um, brave. You know, he he does not hesitate yeah. to and he may he one, he makes it known. So, you know, they 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 tr- they propose Noble Johnson proposes the trade, six women for Anne, of course they say no. And and Inglehorn's yeah. like, We should probably leave. And say okay, and, and yeah. you know, Denim says okay, but let him know I'm coming back tomorrow. And you know, and, right? And, yeah. <laughs> you know, he he does not hesitate to get in the jungle and get right up to wherever he needs to go. So he's like, to your yeah. point, you know, when, when you watch the Peter Jackson one, and the kind of Jack Black is a bit bumbling and is a bit kind of scared or frightened. Uh, yeah, it's not at all uh, the Robert Armstrong Carl Denim here. <laughs> no, 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 not not at all. Um, he's not built the way Jack Driscoll is. Obviously, he doesn't look. He doesn't look that. He's a little shorter and a little stockier and a little a little older at this point, honestly. Yeah. But um, but honestly, but uh, he's a, it's a great actor and Robert Armstrong, and it's just um, it's it's you know he's a good he's a good uh, uh, addition to this. They go back to the ship. Um, uh, Anne has a moment talking about how like well that was weird <laughs> that was pretty freaky. <laughs> Um, uh, again, you, like you said, Livio, her t- talking about like, she just left New York like a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I know. <laughs> she's never been anywhere. <laughs> and now she's almost been kidnapped by a, a native tribe. Um, and there, there was this whole, you know, standoff thing. Uh, um, the, the, the guys on the ship are kind of regrouping. 
um again like 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 denim's like you said like ready to go back and the skipper's like we're not going back what are you talking <laughs> so, yeah so this is that thing like i said like like denim's really brave and he he's sort of callous with his own safety in life um but the problem is he he's very callous with the lives of everyone around him too like he doesn't he expects them all to be willing to take the same possibly foolhardy risks as he takes and everyone else is like no hang on a second <laughs> this 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 there this is a terrible obviously terrible idea and and he doesn't quite get it um the 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 tribe from the village uh has has not oh well okay first of all here's the scene where where uh jack driscoll you know kind of realizes as he's talking that he's in love with Anne, and they they have a nice little little kiss and stuff and there's a great little scene where um denim and 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 the, the 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 skipper uh are having a conversation in in the in the skipper's you know inside the boat and they're out on deck and Driscoll and and Anne kiss and there's this swelling music Steiner brings up and it cuts into in, inside where where the captain and, and Denim are talking and the music just cuts out yeah and then they talk and then it cuts back outside and the music blasts back in like they they do a really funny little bit with the music where it's like oh we're back we're back into the romantic bit now and stuff like that it's really it's very contemporary like I said it's really clever it man. is oh, it, it's it, it was Steiner is fantastic. Um, yeah. Back to the the scene with uh, Driscoll and Anne. I love the way that Fay Ray plays this scene because, again, this is something that is timeless. It's not just her looks; it's also her acting because it's very yeah. very common, especially in the early '30s. You know, if you have a, a love scene, it's kind of a typical, a, a bit over the top. You, you can tell that they're acting. You know, but when you look yes. at Fay Ray and the way that she's looking at him just how she does it and kind of looks down and then looks back up at him. It's not at all anything like what you would normally expect to see out of, a, out of a romance scene in a 1930s movies. It, it is, you can, you can tell exactly what she's yeah. thinking, you know, and it, it is, is very real. It's very, like I said, timeless. And she, she does such she's a great She's very job. naturalistic. She is. Yeah. It, 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 like in kind of opposition of the style of the time. And she reminds me of, um, what's our main actress from Dracula 31? I'm blanking. Helen Chandler. Helen Chandler. She reminds me of Helen Chandler. Helen, I, I, I remember watching that episode and talking about that you could take Helen Chandler and, and yeah, put her in a modern film. And she, she had, she just had this naturalistic way of holding herself and delivering dialogue and, and being present within the character and not really having that arched performance on top of everything. Um, and yeah, and, and definitely, um, and I think that's probably, Look, I mean, obviously, this film has a, a has a, had incredible longevity based on the incredible the storytelling and the effects and the, the the technical achievements and stuff. But I also think it a lot of it is Fay Ray and a lot of oh, yeah. it is this this amazing uh, performance she turns in that that really did eclipse all her other performances. She and she did a ton of stuff. Obviously, we just talked about her in Mystery of the Wax Museum. She's you know she's great in that, but I don't think she's really given the chance to. Uh, uh, define a character the way she's she does here, you know, um, and and yeah, and I'm sure this was a tough shoot for her. She spent a lot of time being held in those fake hands <laughs> yes. and 
and she obviously spent a lot of time on on some process screens where she'd be superimposed onto onto other things and stuff. So yeah, and she's obviously didn't get to wear a whole heck of a lot for a lot of the film. So yeah, you yeah. know, this is this um, definitely a pre code uh, movie. There, there's not a lot of Ray that's is. left to the imagination. <laughs> Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, so the natives uh, sneak on the boat and they kidnap Anne. And all the there's a moment where no one realizes it, and then they start searching for her. And then they find uh, a, a, one of the natives' bracelets or necklaces on the ship, and they figure out what's happened. And and the guys all go into action instantly. They're like, "Okay, we're get the guns, get the boats. We're we're going to go." That is, and um, it's a scary scene. And and the reason I, I say that yeah. is because when they are the natives, obviously they cut out the sound, but the natives are so quiet. And when they come up behind yes, Anne, yes. they they clasp her or you know put their hands around her mouth and she can't scream yeah. and you know i mean it's like one of the most common nightmares anyone ever has is 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 feeling the need that you need to re- call out for somebody but you can't talk you know mm-hmm. and that's a kind of exactly what happens here it's like it, it happens so quickly and there's all these people around but nobody sees it and it's it's kind of it's frightening because it's like oh my god she's gone <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 a nightmare yeah one minute she's there one minute she's gone and 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 i do feel like the whole ship you know, not only the, the the leadership on the boat, but but the ship itself feels a responsibility for her safety. They feel like you know we we brought her here. We need to go get her. Um, <laughs> Denim maybe just wants his lead actress back. I don't know, yeah. but no, he's he's <laughs> he's serious about this. Um, uh, they are seeing the, the in the ship. They're seeing the fires lit on the island, and and they're seeing that there's going to be a ceremony. Um, and they put two and two together pretty quickly. Uh, and they're right because the the tribe on the island. Instantly has has Anne, uh, you know, in their clutches. They're full on in, you know, celebrating their their sacrificial ritual. They take her outside this the gigantic, this gigantic beam that that keeps the gate shut. This deadbolt thing yeah. slides back. They open up this gigantic gate. This gate really did work. It wasn't just like a thing they built. Like they built a forty five foot tall wooden gate that did really did swing open. And we had this amazing crane shot coming in with like a hundred some native extras um, and Anne uh, with incredible costumes, incredible wardrobe, incredible, you know, I mean, accurate or not what they design for this film is, is incredible. And I know like Peter Jackson has like some of the shields and things and uh, and he also has like the pterodactyl and stuff. Peter Jackson has quite a few pieces from this film because obviously it was a big landmark moment for him. Um, but you, when you see them in color, you realize they were very vibrant and very, very cool looking and obviously well-made. Um, they take Anne out to this. There's an altar right outside the gate uh, with these two pillars and they tie her arms up to one pillar. But this really ingenious thing where like the her her hand, her wrist goes through a loop and then they pull it shut to the other side and twist this giant rod that, that cinches it tight. So she's stuck out there. And when Kong does show up, you see he has to take his little finger and like unwind the yeah. little... <laughs> It's a little apparatus. It's really, it's really brilliant. Um, uh, but having said that, we are getting close to. So you know, they they tie her up. They go back inside the gate because they're no fools. Um, <laughs> they've got this system <laughs> yeah. figured out. Um, uh, it's mostly the witch doctor who's in charge of this whole bit. Like tying her up. So they go back in. Um, uh, close the gate, lock it up, and they bang the gong. And there's a great scene where slowly we just start hearing branches cracking slowly we start hearing you know something something gigantic approaching and we see a shape we see a shape moving you know uh uh branches and what's great is we 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 see kong the way Anne sees her Anne sees him for the first time yes you know he's kind of revealed 
not exactly in her point of vision, point of view, but kind of through her, the way she, she first sees him. And we end up seeing the big guy. We see Kong, we see this gigantic 25 foot tall gorilla. Um, and uh, I guess it's a good time to talk about Kong here. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and the apparatus and everything. So again, uh, well, Marcel Delgado, uh, was the guy who created, so inside a stop motion, uh, figure. So, so, Kong is Kong is brought to life mostly through stop motion, which yes. is where a puppet, if, in case everyone needs a refresher, a puppet is is created that can be positioned in any number of ways and <clears throat> is positioned uh, a frame of film a shot. It's moved slightly another frame. And it's moved slightly another frame. Another frame, which is a, a which is really the way a regular film camera cap or captures movement. It 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 takes twenty four still images per second. And when you play those images back at the right speed, it creates an illusion of movement in the camera. Um, cameras don't really capture movement. They capture thousands and thousands, thousands of still images in a sequence that when our eye sees them, it's tricked into reading it as movement. It's, it's all an illusion. Yes. Um, stop motion does that same thing, except it takes a heck of a lot more time and trouble to make that yeah. happen because you are, instead of filming it, you know, 24 frames in one second, you're filming one frame every however many seconds, 30 seconds, 45 seconds, how have you. It's an incredibly labor-intensive and unforgiving uh, process that that we still... I just watched the uh, the uh, trailer for uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which they did with um, stop motion. It's... it's uh, uh, done the traditional way and now they do with like a dslr camera right where they take a, a individual frame every time they move the thing but it is still done the same process it's just this incredibly specific art art form that not that many people know how to do um but it's the way the snow walkers in uh empire strikes back were, were done the the tauntaun in empire strikes back um uh the you know it it up until the advent of digital, it's the way uh, the dinosaurs were going to be created by Phil Tippett in in Jurassic Park. Until suddenly, um, there was a moment where they realized they they could create them partially with computers, and that was the moment that it it was it was for the most part replaced by computer animation. But that's nineteen ninety something. This is nineteen thirty four. You know, about like you know fifty years, fifty some years. Yeah. Uh, this was the way you did this kind of thing all the way up until, like I mentioned, Clash of the Titans in, in the 80s, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the big thing at the end, which I, I can't remember the name of it, but yeah, that thing. <laughs> um, but it's the way the the skeletons and Jason the Argonauts are done and everything. So anyway, um, uh, so Kong is created that way. There are two puppets of Kong that were done and you can see uh, they were done at different sizes and there's slight differences in the face. Yeah. Um they're, they're, the one puppet uh, is a little darker in the face and it has a lower uh, sacral ridge, which is like the big crest thing on top of the, a gorilla's head. Uh, the other one has slightly more prominent browns and, and a more pointed head. Um, and then there was a larger sized head made that could be uh, like puppeteered kind of. And you see that in a lot of the close-ups where Kong's like looking around and smiling and stuff. And frankly, to me, that's the least convincing it is yeah. shots of Kong or that it, it kind of just looks like a little bit of a funhouse creature with the eyes going back and forth and the mouth just, just 
you know, opening, closing, not really having any kind of actual lip motion or animation and stuff. Uh, and then there was a giant hand that was created that for scenes where, where, um, Fay Ray was in, you know, clutched in his, in his hand. Uh, and there was a giant foot made that we see in some of these scenes that were, I think, cut in a lot of the, uh, the earlier versions, uh, where Kong, uh, steps on people and, and smashes them into the, into the ground. Yeah. The conversation continues in part two of our special two-part King Kong episode. Thank you for listening to this episode, but the fun does not stop here. You can follow and interact with the show's hosts and listeners online on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Borgo Pass Horror Podcast is a presentation of Shadow Camera Film and Entertainment. This episode was edited by Livio Marino. The music was composed by Sean Gould. Opening and closing narration are by me, Kat Herons. Show titles and graphics created by Jim Towns. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. Podcast.